Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. This Institute of Catholic Culture event was held at Three Fox Vineyards in Delaplaine, Virginia, where we joined the vineyard in celebrating the annual San Gennaro Festival in honor of the martyr St. Genarius, the patron of the city of Naples, Italy, whom you'll learn a little bit more about. Participants enjoyed a beautiful day of wine tasting and Italian sausages grilled by the Knights of Columbus while dining among the grapevines. It was truly Catholic culture at its best. As this presentation was held outdoors, the sound quality of the recording isn't quite up to our standard, but we know you'll enjoy this program, featuring Dr. John Cutterback of Christendom College and brought to you by the Institute of Catholic Culture. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. Please welcome back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. John Cutterback. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to introduce myself as a, as a geriatric father. My, my wife is actually due uh, this week, and it is our sixth child that we've been blessed with. So I have five children. The eldest is 15, the youngest at this point in time is seven, or just about to turn seven. So this, is a, this has been a big uh, space here for us, and I was uh, told not that long ago that I am officially a geriatric father, as my wife is officially having a geriatric pregnancy. But in any case, we are in, in incredibly uh, excited after this uh, uh, hiatus, and we actually we have four girls and one boy, and this is going to be another uh, little boy. So the whole family is, uh, is especially excited. But I mentioned my seven-year-old. I want to tell you a little something. I have had, uh, I had surgery a week ago. I had never had surgery in my life. I had a, a fortunately, it was just a very minor, it's a basal cell carcinoma. So I had, a, I had had a growth under my nose, and that was removed last week. So that's why I, I look a, a little bit um, shocking. I think my students, when they first saw me like this, actually respect me a little more. It's kind of... <laughs> It's kind of edgy to look like this, but um, but that that, that seven-year-old, as I said, I, I had a growth under my under my nose that, that of course now is not there. But last Christmas, this is one of the joys of of, of having children. Um, we were on the way to my parents' house for Christmas, and um, the children wanted me to wear this kind of silly hat. And I said, you know, I, actually, children, I'm I'm not going to show up at grandma and grandpa's house on Christmas Day wearing that hat. And so Juliana said, but daddy, you are showing up with a ball under your nose. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, being a teacher, I'm normally not at a loss for words. I have to admit, I just kind of smiled and wasn't sure what to do. So on, on, on that note, in any case, this Christmas, uh, I won't have a ball under my nose. Restoring Catholic culture in a post-Christian world. I'd like to draw your attention, and by the way, I, I am, as Sabatina mentioned, I'm going to keep it kind of short, and I am hoping that maybe we can have a little bit of discussion at the end, uh, 
questions, discussion, I, I'd encourage you. So go ahead and hold the questions to the end, but that won't be very long. I'd like to draw your attention to the parable of the sower, a parable that shows up in several of the Gospels, and it, it clearly was a, was a central image that our Lord wanted us to have. The seed falls on different kinds of ground. It can fall on the path. It can fall on rocky ground. It can fall on ground where there will be thorns. And it can fall on good ground. And one of the main questions it seems that our Lord would have us ask is, what's the difference? We naturally find ourselves saying, how can we make sure that we have the good ground and that our soul type is a good soul soil type? Well, one of the ways that Christianity traditionally addressed this issue was through culture. Culture is communal ways of living that cultivate a certain type of soul, soil type. There are, of course, many things that we can do as individuals. There's, there's different things in our spiritual life, in our life as a whole, that can address what kinds of soul, soil type we have. But our topic for today, of course, is culture. Note, of course, the word. Culture is, again, ways of communal living that cultivate a certain way of life, cultivate a certain type of soul, so that we will be best prepared to receive the word of God. So that, I give you as the background, it makes it, it's, it's a very exciting and dramatic thing. Culture is beautiful, it means many different things, it has many different forms, but at roots, for Christians, the beautiful thing about it is, is that it is precisely, ultimately, a way that we are making ourselves be best prepared to receive the Word of God. Now, I'm, I invite you to imagine for a moment, then, what might a culture look like? that is literally designed around Christian principles? What might a culture look like where the people that form it and the people that live it have put first and foremost Christian ideals? That we believe that our life is for God, our life is from God that everything should ultimately be ordered to that, a profound understanding of soul and body and the relationship between them. What might a culture look like? I'm not going to try to sketch that at the moment, but let's say put that right here and then realize we are not living in such a culture, though such a culture is possible. And Christians need to be aware of what hand we've been dealt. When Christians are in a Christian culture, then they love it and they live it. When we're not, 
then we do our best to form one. We're not going to complain and say, oh, we've been dealt an unfair hand. No, but rather we are going to remember what our ideals are and we're going to do our best to try to mitigate the negative influences of the culture that we're in. But think, let's just take a moment on what Pope John Paul II called a culture of death. Consider that many of the common forms of living in the world around us have literally been formed by principles that are directly, directly unchristian. And I'd like to throw this challenge out at you. I think one of the main reasons that we Christians find it difficult, or at times more difficult than we realized, to live the kind of life we want to live, to raise our children the way that we want to raise our children, is that we are not being realistic about how serious and negative the influence of a bad culture, of a culture of death, is. Being the social beings that we are, if we are in a culture that has been founded on, and I'm going to throw out at you two principles, putting the body over the soul and putting the individual before the communal, before relationship. Here are two principles that fundamentally form the culture in which we live. That the bodily is more important than the spiritual, and that individuals should look to their own private good first, as opposed to looking to interrelationship and community. A culture that has been formed fundamentally upon that has that then showing up in all parts of our life. And what I want to throw out at you is we are having those principles, as it were, thrust upon us and a way of life in accord with those principles literally cultivated in us by the structures of life all around us in things as perhaps seemingly innocuous as music habits of shopping, ways that we work, ways that we entertain ourselves. These things are formed by those principles. So what I'd like to suggest on the flip side is, what can we do? Let's turn it around. Let's think in terms of at the root of our approach to culture, these communal ways of living, these cultural expressions are going to be different priorities. We are going to put soul and the spiritual goods absolutely first. And we are going to put the importance of true community, of true personal relationship. First of all, relationship with God, but then also in a very important way, relationship within families, relationship between families, between friends. We're going to have those principles be first and have them form our cultural expressions. And that is a way that we can be seeking to renew culture in what is fundamentally a post-Christian world. So I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to briefly take four areas, make a few specific suggestions as regards those four areas, and then I'm going to stop. The first area is entertainment. The very words itself already is a clue I throw out at you that we have a problem. 
our culture encourages us to think in terms of entertainment. Something, someone needs to entertain me. We don't think in terms of recreation. We think in terms of entertainment. And in fact, there is a massive entertainment industry that is designed to form how you spend, how I spend my free time. And what I'd like to throw out at you is we need, in this area, to say to ourselves, we can do much better. We need to do something explicitly different. And here I'm going to be, I'm going to be a little bit challenging with you. I think, I think that most serious Christians have a sense of, well, there's some things in the entertainment industry that we don't do. That's a, that's a little on the edge. I'd like to throw out at you, we should have a much more radical approach and have a sense of, we have got to be cultivating fundamentally different ways of spending our free time than simply consuming the music, for instance, that is expressive of and cultivating of a worldview that is fundamentally at odds with Christianity. Use this as a very quick example. Plato, Aristotle, they were utterly convinced, as were many great Christian thinkers too, but I wanted to point them out because they didn't even have the advantage of grace, utterly convinced that music is the central cultural expression of a worldview and is a central way that souls are formed in accord with it. And they always said, watch the music. You know a culture, you know a civilization by its music. I throw this at you. When I was young, there was a song that I heard. I, I'm not sure what the title of it was, but I remember, the, at least in the refrain, was, we built this city on rock and roll. And I'd like to throw out at you, I think a good case can be made. There's been a city built on rock and roll, ladies and gentlemen. And it is ugly. And it's not just ugly. It's worse than ugly. And that music is actually a part of it. And many Christians, in my experience, just go right along and listen to the same music everybody else does. There's music that has been born and bred by a worldview that hates ours. That's just an example. Movies. Well, let's, let's, by the way, let's, let's stay with music for a second, by the way. We actually have a tradition of unbelievably fabulous music. Sacred music, unmatched, high classical music that is, that, to which the soul can soar. Many right here come from different cultural backgrounds where there is folk music that is fabulously festive for an afternoon such as will po probably be some nice Italian folk. Good cultures have festive music that's very joyful, but very ordered and beautiful. So music is an essential part of life, and we need to set the bar much higher. The good news is, if we, don't, if we find we have problems with what's around us, we have much other that we can go to. 
Let's go to other ways of, of entertaining ourselves quickly and, and then move on. I mean, movies. We don't have to spend much time on it. I'm just going to say, are we being serious about realizing the vast majority of stuff that, again, comes from this industry is not a good way to spend our time. We can do much better than that. The main thing I like to say about entertainment is this. People-centered entertainment. Just a couple generations ago, and, and I think many here will know exactly what I'm referring to, people knew how to get together and recreate. Where primarily what was going on was rich ways of interacting with one another. Whether it was even parlor games, or let's read this together and let's have a discussion, let's have a sing-along. Most ways, traditionally, recreation happened was very interpersonal, as opposed to coming from an industry where you pay someone else, in general, to pop something on a screen or put it in a speaker, and we passively consume. But we're not coming any closer to one another doing so. The kind of impersonal approach to entertainment. Again, we can do so much better. My second area is economics. Here I want to use a quick theme from John Paul II. He threw out the word for our consideration, consumerism. Well, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to give you my own definition of, I think, what John Paul II meant by consumerism. Treating the accumulation of goods as though it's more important than it is. Consumerism. Treating the accumulation of goods as though it's more important than it is. What is our culture encouraging us to do? Shopping tends to be entertainment, first of all. Right? I mean, when, when people are bored, they start spending money. In general, people in our civilization tend to measure themselves also by how much have I accumulated. I want to throw out at you that John Paul II, saw this, he was in, in certain ways he was gentle, but then again he, he wasn't very gentle, though I think at times, particularly Americans, just weren't listening. But he would say, ladies and gentlemen, you all have a problem. Your culture is fundamentally consumerist. Your lives seem to revolve around the accumulation of material possessions. And he tried to introduce a different approach. He tried to introduce a approach. The word for us perhaps doesn't have the most positive connotations, but I want to throw out at you, maybe we just need to change how we think about this word, frugality. Frugality. Frugality, self-discipline, and going along with that is just a certain freedom. I throw out for you, this, this actually is a very, very important part of culture. Many European commentators, as well as American, pointed out one of the biggest problems, especially with America, and I think at this point we've gotten beyond where we even notice this about ourselves anymore. It seems that it always revolves around the economy. As though. As though. The economy should be our central consideration in anything. 
Economy, of course, is important. It's important. But I, I present the air we breathe and the water we're drinking is making us think in terms of material flourishing as somehow determinative, fundamentally, of life. Where, again, we all perhaps have known people or visit a culture wherein you can see the happiness, you can see the flourishing that is utterly unconnected, utterly unconnected with any type of material flushness. Obviously, basic needs need to be fulfilled. Right? But so I, I, I thought, can we challenge ourselves? Can we say, you know, shopping shouldn't be a pastime. Christians seek material things when they need them. And if we don't need them, we shouldn't want them. And we should then attend to the things that are more important. I throw that at you. We can discuss that later according to your interest. Our third topic area, kind of moving upward here, is, is family life in the sense of family culture of living together. And I'm really excited to uh, share something with you. Just recently, I was preparing for a course on family in the household, and I was reading Aristotle. And I think you, this really struck me. I struck the students, and I think you're going to like this. It's very simple, but I think it's very telling. Aristotle describes the family household in a very simple way. He says it's the community wherein daily needs are met. And he said, and you know how we can, we can tell this? Of course, you realize he was writing over 2,000 years ago, but he says there's two main ways that the family has been referred to in Greek culture. And you know what those two simple ways that the family was referred to in Greek culture? Those who sit around the same table and those who sit around the same fire. Those were the two names, and he was giving, it was an etymological thing. There are Greek words that mean those two things. And he said, these are the main way the family was referred to. Those who sit around the same table, and those who sit around the same fire. Now, maybe this is starting to go through your mind, what's, what, what is going through my mind, thinking, that's funny. <laughs> that wouldn't have anything to do with a family and households around us now. Why am I so excited to share this with you? Because I think, in a sense, there's something very simple that we have been missing as Christians that we need to get back to. In earlier cultures, this wasn't a particular challenge. It was just given by the setup of things. In ours, ladies and gentlemen, you know as well as I do, that's not the case anymore. Families need, households need to live together. They need to be together. They need to interact with one another. We have a civilizational crisis when people don't have a place, they fundamentally belong where, functionally, every day they are together with people they love being formed in meaningful interaction. When he says they're sitting around the same table and they're sitting around the same fire, it's obvious what they were doing they 
were talking to one another, and it's, in this day and age you actually have to say that, they were communicating with one another and they were using lips. <laughs> they were using lips and ears. And that is real human communication. And we have a crisis of people, especially young people, who honestly think about it. They almost never do that. in deep and meaningful ways, that is a problem. And I honestly suggest for your consideration, we need to say, you know, there is a big challenge right here, and we are going to take significant steps to do something about that. And honestly, you know, I was smiling uh, with some of the students as we were thinking about it, you know, this thing of sitting around the fire. You know, maybe you even need to do something crazy. You know what some people have, have suggested? I'll just throw it out. It might sound crazy, but I don't think it is completely crazy to have at least a thought like this. Maybe we should not have central heating, and maybe we should have a fire. Because then it is the only warm place in the house, and people would actually have to sit in the same room and not be doing other things. And they would speak with one another. And I, you know, the fun, I, I, how do we convey? How do we begin to understand? We're talking about something that's at the epicenter of life here. There's no such thing as culture if there's not that. So family habits. We need to get serious about having, and let me put it this way, having the home be a focus of energy. When I think of the fundamental model of the household in, I'm just going to say suburbia, because functionally everything is suburbia at this point, Everyone's going everywhere, even, even if it's just you know, good things. Someone's at soccer practice, someone's here, someone's there. Where's the community? Where's the energy where life is being lived together by people who love one another, who hold one another up, who give one another meaning all the time? I don't want to. I don't want to be, beat a dead horse. But again, I, I'm utterly convinced that has always been the center of culture, and there will not be any culture if we don't put first of all a premium on making that happen again right there in our homes. And one quick practical suggestion on that. You know what? One uh, that I, I I was so moved when I read. Someone said, perhaps what our families need to do to help keep a little bit more of the center of attraction in the home is make the home a place not just of consumption, but of production. One of the things that tended to bring families together was the fact that they had something they needed to do together. When the family had to put up the vegetables for the winter, they're all in the same room and they're all doing something together that's meaningful and, and gives them something to be bound around. Again, I know this sounds so, so simple, 
but I throw at you, perhaps our households need to be places more where the basics of life are actually being cultivated and produced. The home arts, by the way, one, one great commentator said, how do we think we'll ever have the higher arts in our culture when we don't even have the home arts anymore? I think that's worth considering. I come to my fourth area of, of suggestion, and we'll close with a couple thoughts on Sundays. Sundays. The neat thing about Sunday is this will give us an opportunity to bring it all together. First of all, Sunday should be a reflection of who we are. It shows where our first principles are, where our heart is. Sunday is fundamentally about worship. Sunday, like our life, is fundamentally about worship. That, of course, is the real energy of culture. Cult. The cult of worship. That has always been the real energy for the other expressions. So Sunday, we put a prim primacy on liturgy, and then also familial, friendly prayer. But moving on from there, what else do we do on, on Sunday? We could just quickly go back up through the other three areas that we just said. Just moving right back up the list. Sunday is also a day for the family. We've already just spent enough time on keeping a certain energy in the home. I throw out at you, this is something that we can make a resolution about. On Sundays, we're going to give a primacy to being together with the people that we love. Can I throw this at you? I, I, the, the wisdom of children. You know, I, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm, I'm saying something that's too obvious, but something I've learned from my children is their needs are very simple. You know what they want? They want what God made them to want. They want to be with the people that they love. Beyond that, they really don't care about very much. We were made to be together with the people that we love. What else is there? So on Sunday, we go to the Lord who made us, and we express our thanks and our worship, and otherwise we get together with the people that we love. That's the family. Above that, and by what else is Sunday? The economics thing. Sunday is non-economics. Boom. <laughs> don't worry about anything economic. We don't shop. We don't even put up the vegetables in general. With economic things, we are free from, altogether, by divine command from the get-go. I mean, I think that sometimes we Christians can, 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 can forget that, particularly in a culture where advertisements are, is a badge of honor. We will be here for you on Sunday. Dear God, don't be there for me on Sunday, because you're not supposed to be there for me on Sunday, right? But to Christians, do we, do we respond in this way? We need to be worshiping, and we need to be with our families. So let me just set the economics aside. And it is also a time for recreation. May our recreation, those, all those cultural expressions, great music, folk music, parties, etc., may that be a time, and see how it all fits together perfectly, Sunday is the day 
to be what we were made to be, to live culture at its height, to have worship at the center, to be with the people that we love, and to have that flow over into cultural expressions that fit with all those things we hold most dear. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Dr. Pedro. We're going to do a short, very short Q&A. I know you want to uh, get a bite to eat and also get in there for some wine tasting. Questions? Uh, Dr. Cuddleback, in the last three weeks I've had three people um, say something to me and I had no apologetics with which to respond. And I think it's not a coincidence that they've asked me this. In regards to um, the issue of responsibility, meaning... I, am, I respond, I have the ability to respond, and here's the question. Gee, I'm damaged goods. Uh, I was raised in a family. I was, you know, baptized Catholic, but hey, I'm damaged goods. I, I can't love anyone other than myself. I don't know how to love. Therefore, it's, it's over. I can't change. And I've come to the Institute of Catholic Culture for, what, two years, three years? I didn't know what to say. I, my heart broke for them, but I wanted to say, well, we all have original sin. How can I help you? I, I, I don't know what to say. Th that's one of the more profound questions I have received. And um, <laughs> profound Maybe. normally means difficult, too. I just know, taking a number of your classes, you've always dealt with question how do we deal with the fact that we have vices or we have a, we have a history uh, we're right. a product of, of our background and then how do we become who God wants us to become right well thank you um, I, I um, you know what I'm gonna tell you what I do if some if someone asked, had asked me that question I would have first of all I think it's very critical times to do this recognize where the person is and say that must be extremely difficult I, I suffer with you and you know what my prayer for you is? I'm still saying what I'd say. You know what my prayer, my tr deep prayer for you is that you will come to see and to know the healing love of the God who made you. For the God who has called you into existence has a plan of love for you. And that plan of love at times takes very strange turns. And we can all have deep hurts, but love always has the power to overcome. And you're going to need to discover it. And then that is going to be, that's going to begin to empower you to be able to say, I am loved, and I can love, and I'm going to start to cultivate, I'm going to take responsibility, and I'm going to begin to cultivate the habits of life that corresponds to this. And, and so it's always a delicate balance. We do have to take responsibility. It is in our power by the grace of God. But love is at the root. I would suggest you say, I pray that you will see the love that drives everything. Love is at the root of things, including culture. John Paul II, we need a civilization of love. Our culture is a culture of atomization of dividing people into individuals. This is very connected to the things that we were talking about. A culture that emphasizes selfishness always leads to loneliness. Selfishness, loneliness. Loneliness, selfishness. We are encouraged to be selfish 
and we have untold numbers of elderly people spending golden, precious years alone, God forbid. We're reaping the fruits of our selfishness. We should be together generationally. That's where the love is. Thank you for the question. We've been trying to live Catholic culture for more than two decades. What do you do with these two kind of family members? They're Catholic. One, the ex-Catholic who hates the church. The other, the comfortable secularist who's not interested. Right. Um, another easy question. <laughs> That's okay. Um, the only thing that addresses hatred um, is love. And of course, hatred is normally the result also of hurt. So there's actually an important connection here. People only get angry about the Catholic faith when they're in pain. Right? And in general, we're in pain. I don't want to play the psychologist because we haven't felt the love, because we haven't seen the truth and the beauty of the love that we are called to. So I mean, what can I say? I'm going to make this suggestion. You, of course, continue to live in, in, by example. In general, I think preaching towards such people is not the answer. You probably could affirm that from your own existence, but the same from your own experience. At the same time, though, being, being consistent in being open and loving about your standards, about your convictions, and I always find it very helpful to take the approach of, I'm so excited, I'm so desirous that you could share in the joy that we have. That's why we evangelize. That's why we try to bring people to the faith or bring people back to the faith. Because we have the joy that we know that they're made for. So if we can convey to them we have this joy that we want you to have too. Please consider coming back kind of thing. You know what Socrates the philosopher would say? The worst kind of ignorance is ignorance of your ignorance. When you don't realize you don't see something, it's very difficult to come to see. When you don't realize you have a problem, it's very difficult to solve the problem. That's one reason our culture has produced a lot of people that are very self-satisfied. When things are going super well economically, uh, humans have this amazing ability to be distracted by, hey, I've got all this stuff, I've got this comfy car, my job's going well, and we, we think we're living the good life. Because those things are going well. So the, the comfortable person is extremely difficult to reach. Very often it's in the crisis that we become open. But even there, even there, that person is made for more. That person doesn't know the deeper happiness that Christianity brings. And so I, we're preaching the happiness. We're preaching the joy and trying to share that. That's a thought for what it's worth. Yes, uh... You contrasted uh, entertainment with recreation, whereas entertainment is passively consumed and recreation is... This is actually what I want you to clarify. Okay. Is it always something that involves an interaction with other people? Good question. Is there more to, to recreation uh, than just the fact that uh, it's you know an interaction with others? How about this? Uh, great question. So what, so what constitutes recreation as, as different from entertainment? I, I would say it doesn't have to simply be a matter of kind of passive alone versus more active together. 
though I would say that, that those are some pretty good ways to start the distinction. In general, entertainment is more passive, and it is, tends to be more done alone. Not that you can't be in a group, but I mean, you know, the proverbial group that goes out to the, to the movies, you know, they're all sitting in the same row, but I mean, did they experience anything together? It seems to me not particularly. But then the things that we're doing actively tend to be things that more engage us with one another. I would, I would throw out something else. Be seeking for things that engage in beautiful or meaningful ways the higher powers of the soul. I can have a very recreational time in my garden. It's activity. It's certainly not passive. It's very peaceful. But the stewardship, the cultivation, the planting of the seed, the looking towards the fruit, I mean, this, this engages human power and passions in a very rich and meaningful way. So it's just certain kinds of activities that more engage our dignity, more engage our higher powers, are more intrinsically valuable and beautiful. And that is more recreating, because it draws us towards the higher things that we're made towards. Let me throw a great point at you from 20th century thinker Dietrich von Hildebrand, and to connect it with the getting together with others. He made this great point. The higher the thing is that you pursue, the more power it has to bring people together. The higher the thing you pursue, the higher the thing you have in common with someone, the more it brings you together. What, what, what more brings you together than when you meet someone that holds the faith dear the way that you do? I mean, it just immediately is this amazing power of bringing together. So in, in a similar way, in recreation, when we, when we engage our powers as regards higher things. Let's read a great reading together and think about it. This is the type of thing that really brings us together versus having done something lower together. So you see, in general, it's not just I'm looking towards bringing us together, though I always want us to be thinking in those terms, but also looking for the intrinsically higher, more meaningful, noble things. Higher cultural expressions tend to be that. Does that help a little bit? Thank you very much for that Thank you question. very much, Dr. Cutterback. Thank you, Sabatino. We're very blessed oftentimes at the Institute of Catholic Culture to have Father Joseph and Father Charles with us, which you know they have in their soul a great uh, depth of wisdom. And uh, as I spoke with Father Joseph this morning, and it was raining, and I uh, why is God doing this to me? And he spouted off a beautiful little Italian phrase about San Gennaro, and so I asked him to share that with you today, and then I'll just speak for about five minutes about uh, St. Genarius and, uh, and relics, and then we'll have some wine tasting. As you know, St. Gennaro, or St. Januarius, is the patron saint of the city of, of Naples. It's a sprawling metropolis right in the middle of the boot of Italy, and the Neapolitans are famous for being people of quick wit and individuals who are very, very passionate with life. They also are very passionate about their patron saint, the bishop and martyr Januarius, and called it Italian Gennaro. The Italians of Naples have a wonderfully sacred, familiar relationship with their saint. He's not someone far away that they go to on bended and so on, but there's a sacred familiarity with the approach on Gennaro. At this time of the year in Italy, as around the Mediterranean, rain doesn't customarily fall. Uh, occasionally when there is a bad drought, 
they will take the statue of St. Januarius on their shoulder and bring him out among the people and with applause and bands playing and so on and so forth. And they'll take him down to the seashore. And they'll take that statue and shake it back and forth a little bit and say in Neapolitan Arabic, which means, Oh, beautiful St. Januarius, either you wet us or we're going to give you a dunking. <laughs> and more often than not, the saint comes through and a day or two afterwards, it'll rain. Occasionally, however, it has happened when the drought continued and they kept their word. Took the statue down to the seashore, into the Tyrrhenian Sea and went. They baptized St. Januarius again and then brought him back to the church. And then it would rain after that for them. So, there again, that, that lovely sacred familiarity because there's a relationship that Dr. Cutterback talked about with the sacred element of the living. It isn't far away from them. It's always there. His image hangs in their homes. A quarter of the men in Naples are called someplace. Their names, Januarius Gennaro. Family names, middle names, given names. A sacred familiarity with the holy things of God. And that's something I think that the celebration of the feast day can give to us as a thing to take back, along with the wonderful words of Dr. Cutterback, a sense of the saints, our friends, God's friends, are always with us. Thank you, Father Joseph. Well, I, I hope your, your, your stomachs are getting a little hungry because the Knights of Columbus are, are working over there quite hard. You guys ready with your sandwiches yet? Oh, you're ready to go. Okay. I'll keep it short. Um, San Gennaro, of course, his father said, was a bishop in Italy in the, uh, the late 3rd century, early 4th century. He's a martyr under the, um, under the persecution of Diocletian. It is said that he was martyred in the year 305 with a number of his companions, and probably priests of the diocese, that were with him. He was thrown into a furnace along with his friends, and like the three young men in the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel, uh, the fire did not touch him, did not wound him. He was then taken out of the fire in, with his friends, um, and... Uh, fed to the wild beasts. Well, the wild beasts would not eat him. And so, t being taken out of the amphitheater, he, the, uh, the governor ordered that, that San Gennaro and his friends be beheaded. At his command that they be beheaded, the, the governor who had ordered it went blind. And St. Gennaro, standing there, healed him on the spot. It said that 5,000 onlookers converted at that moment and the governor went ahead who had been healed and took off his head along with his friends his feast day is September 19th this coming Monday uh, and on his feast day as a number of other days throughout the year there is a great miracle that is worked by him in Naples where his blood or in his body still resides. His head is taken in a uh, silver case to the altar, and his blood in two vials are taken also to the altar. Prayers, petitions are made to God, and by tradition, the blood liquefies, it had been solid, liquefies, and on occasion even bubbles within the, uh, the, 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 the holders, the vials. Now, as Catholics, we are today bombarded with disbelief in a society that has really has no faith. 
And so the miracle of San Gennaro is oftentimes called into question. In fact, I was speaking with a friend of mine today earlier, and he said, come on, why would God do that? And by the way, when did this first happen? Well, it is recorded for the first time in the 14th century, a time really in, in Italy, and maybe not the high point of the church, just before the Protestant Revolution. And so obviously, this must be some sort of uh, magic of the Dark Ages, if you will, of the Catholic Church. Far from it. Far from it. Why would God do such a thing? Oftentimes in the worst times in the history of the church, God has intervened in our lives to take us from the level that we were at, bent over, as St. Athanasius says, at the time of the Incarnation, man was bent over with his sins so that he could not raise his eyes to God. And so God descended to earth. He made his dwelling in a place where the animals eat. There he was born so as to raise us up again to see the God of heaven and to be divinized in his image and likeness. Similarly, in the 14th century, at a time, a very sad time in the history of the church, God did intervene among men to give us this miracle why miracles? First of all, remember as Catholics, we do not seek for miracles as, the, as kind of the answer that we need to hold on to the faith. Miracles are a gift to those that don't believe. As we learn in the Gospel of John, the Pharisees at the time, and many of the Jews were following Jesus, always looking for a sign, looking for a sign. But they never saw any of the miracles that he did. Okay, because they had become blind. He continued to do miracles in order to cultivate some sort of excitement for these men that had been bent down by their sin, so as to be an occasion for faith. So never do we run around looking for the next miracle, looking for the next miracle. No, we look for Jesus Christ. But this miracle is given for those in our society that do not believe that they can come to a belief in Christ our God. Now, Many of our Protestant brothers and sisters would say, ah, I see the Catholics um, don't believe in the Word of God because they're always putting in uh, the place of God men, so-called saints, and even worse than that, relics, dead bones of dead men. What happened to Jesus Christ? We read in 1 Timothy there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. There's one mediator, Catholics. So what are you doing going around worshiping statues and worshiping relics and so forth? Of course, we know as Catholics we do not worship the saints. We do not worship relics. But we do give them reverence and honor as is their due. So I just want to point out to you a couple of texts that are important. First of all, in Acts chapter 5, verse 15. Now many signs and wonders were done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high honor. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and pallets, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them, so that they would be healed. At least his shadow. Jesus? The shadow of Jesus? No, the shadow of blessed Peter. Of course, 
Peter had been transfigured in the image and likeness of the Lord. So for us believers, we understand, is the work of Jesus Christ through Peter, through his hands, that now Christ is made present on earth. In Acts chapter 19, verse 11, And God did extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs and aprons were carried away from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Pieces of cloth were touched to the saints and brought to the sick so that the sick could be healed. I'll read you one more text. The story of the burial of a young man who had died during the time of the kings. And he was, I'll read the text to you, it's a little bit confusing, but uh, Elisha the prophet had died and he was in a tomb and this other man had died and a marauding band of Moabites invaded the town and so they took the man who had just recently died they didn't have time to give him a proper burial and they threw him into the tomb of the prophet Elisha so Elisha died and they buried him and now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year and as a man was being buried lo a marauding band was seen and the man was cast into the grave of Elisha and as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha he revived and stood on his feet the bones yes the dead bones of a dead man and he brought another man back to life now let's go ahead and set aside the argument Protestant versus Catholic and so forth because now we have the Word of God and the Word of God is for relics and the use of relics to heal people now that we have that settled I asked you why and it has something very simple it is the foundation of theology it is the foundation of the revelation of God and it is this and if you know this and you answer every theology questions ever put to you with this answer you will get it right God loves us and love always seeks to communicate itself with another as Dr. Cutterback was talking about today we are made for community because from all eternity God shared his life within the Trinity and that is the image and likeness we are made in and so similarly, when God loves us, he shares what is proper to God alone, namely life. And he shares it with men. But it's not enough that he shares it with us, because he's made us in his image and likeness. He wants us to share his life with others so that we can be even more like him. This is the central teaching of the church. It is the central teaching of Revelation, that God loves us. And therefore, yes, dead bones of dead men. Yes, bread can become the body of the Lord. And what was wine can become his blood. Yes, the muddy waters of the Jordan River can be the occasion of the sanctification of mankind. And yes, a man and a woman can be married. And when they marry each other, they unite themselves in the eternal God. The sacramental system of the church is not some far-out theological idea that developed over hundreds and hundreds of years. It is founded in the basic truth that God loves us. Amen? Okay. We are going to go have a nice time. I encourage you to stay around. We're going to have a little bit of music playing. And the Knights of Columbus, I think, are ready for you. God bless you. See you this Thursday. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.
If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.